the first Bible reference we turn up here in just a few moments. So if you want to go ahead and turn there while they're passing out the papers, that might be helpful. So we've had quite the pause uh, in our lesson here. I've been gone the last three Sundays, and I appreciate Pastor Kimbrough taking the class, and uh, hopefully you all profited from the video uh, about the Reformation and the Puritans and, and whatnot that we began on um, Reformation Day that Pastor Kimbrough finished out. Uh, it's a very profitable video. The last lesson that we had together, uh, walking through Henry Scudder's book, The Christian's Daily Walk, was walking with God in times of prosperity. And I kind of said tongue-in-cheek that that Lord's Day we might be dealing with something that some of us are not quite very familiar with. Um, just, you know, tongue-in-cheek that we don't really perceive ourselves maybe to have a lot of prosperity uh, we're, uh, I think, too enamored with the world's definition of prosperity. But all joking aside, um, we're coming today to something that I think we are, unfortunately, all the more familiar with. And that is walking with God in affliction. Now, obviously, we do have a mixture of both, right? We, uh, just as we were dealing in the lessons not too long ago, walking with God alone, and then walking with God in company, we find ourselves in both of those situations from time to time. We're, we're by ourselves, and we have to walk with God in that context, and we're among others, our friends, family, co-workers, neighbors, whatever, and we have to walk with God with them as well. And so now we have juxtaposed these two things of walking with God in times of prosperity and walking God, with God in adversity. We've made the comment, and... I think this will resonate with you. It is perhaps more difficult, ironically, to walk with God in prosperity than it is to walk with God in affliction. And that is because of our own sinfulness. When we are prospering, when things are going well, and we're not really having any problems, however long or short of a time that might endure, we tend... Because of our own sinfulness, we tend to take too much credit for that. And we tend to forget the Lord. We, we tend to, to just go about our business as if we are responsible for our prosperity. And if you remember when we were dealing with that lesson, the Lord specifically warned the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. He, he told them the future, as it were. He says, I'm going to bring you to this land. You're going to enter into this land. You're going to live in houses that you didn't build. You're going to eat from gardens that you didn't plant. You're going to drink wine from vineyards that you didn't plant. You're going to enjoy the prosperity of a land that you didn't have anything to do with. You're, you're taking over somebody else's, and this is going to be wonderful for you. Don't forget me. And that's the warning that he gives. Don't forget me. Because he knows the natural tendency of the human heart in times of prosperity to forget the Lord. In times of affliction, that's when we, rightly so, 
but in times of affliction, that's when we turn to the Lord. We, we are right, it, it is godly, for us to understand where our real help comes from. We know our help comes from the Lord. And we know that. And, you know, I, not, I don't want to mention any specific names. This is going to be obvious, I think, to everybody here. We have recently had, in the past couple years in our church, some very significant times of affliction in a few families in our church. And thankfully, and we praise the Lord for it, you could make a poster like, this is the way to do it. When you face affliction, do it that way. Right? We, have, we have been blessed beyond measure to be able to watch. You know, some of us have been in it. Some of us have just observed. We have seen people go through affliction almost in a model way. We praise the Lord for that. It's a testimony of the Lord's grace in the, the lives and families of our church and we rejoice in that and so when we deal with affliction when we face affliction in life Henry Scudder has some very good things for us as far as how to continue walking with God in those times um, but before he gets into the deep water he deals with what he calls lighter crosses and so I, I put that in your note in, in quotation marks just simply because that's the, the phrase that he uses he begins by addressing this, this thing called lighter crosses. And he doesn't give a lot of examples, and I think that's wise. I'm going to try to give some examples. Maybe that's unwise. And I'll explain why, why I'm saying that. What is a lighter cross? Well, you might have in your mind a category of affliction that you would say, it's not really that big of a deal. But as soon as you enunciate what that is, somebody else is like, what do you mean that's not a big deal? That would be a catastrophe, right? And so I think when we, even when he uses this phrase, lighter crosses, it's going to be relative for each individual person and their circumstance. And so I tried to think of some examples just to, to help us understand what he's talking about. A flat tire, right? And you might just laugh at that and say, well, a flat tire is not really an affliction. I mean, let's, let's be honest here. That's not, that's not afflictive. Well, for somebody it might be. Like, a flat tire for someone, you know, I haven't had to repair a flat tire in a while, but I know we needed a new tire for our trailer. It was going to be a hundred bucks. And again, you might think a hundred dollars, what's the big deal about a hundred bucks? But for somebody that might be a big, huge, massive deal. And a hundred dollars, that I mean that might be almost to the point of catastrophe. And so that might not be a light cross, right? Or you know, some other you know, car repair, your transmission goes out. So now we're in the, you know, a couple thousand dollar kind of range. Again, is that an affliction? Again, see how this is relative, right? Somebody might say, no, that really is an affliction. That really is a hard trial that I'm having to deal with. And another person might look at a sickness or a, a 
sorry, I just read a word while I'm talking. Somebody might think about something like that and say, you know, that's not that big of a deal. But you think about something that maybe is more universally recognized as an affliction. Take, for example, a chronic illness. I don't know if this is the case, but it might be that there is someone in our church that has a serious chronic illness that most of you don't know about. Like a few people might know that that person deals with this chronic illness, but a lot of people in the church might not have any idea that that person even has that thing. Right? And, and so is that a light cross? Well, for them, it it might be a huge burden. Another person might hear of that. It's like, well, I know somebody that's got that, and it's not that big of a deal. They're, I mean, it doesn't bother them all that much. That's not really an affliction. That's something easy to deal with. So, again, we want to be careful here, but I think I've communicated, and I think you understand what we're talking about. But he gives four recommendations here, uh, general guidelines uh, of dealing with these lesser matters. And again, this is going to be relative. But what he says is don't make them worse through impatience or discontentment. Basically, don't fight against God's providence in your affliction. If the Lord has brought this into your life, don't be discontent. Don't be impatient for it to go away. You know, you think about the Apostle Paul. So he, he had this thorn in the flesh. And he says three times he prayed that this would go away. I've said this before, but I don't think we're to understand from the scriptures that what Paul means is that he only prayed three times. Like he only said, dear Jesus, or dear Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Like that formula of praying. He only did that three times. I think, this is my opinion, you can disagree. I think what Paul means by what he says, that three times he prayed that this would be taken away, I think it's three seasons of prayer. Whether he prayed for a couple weeks, a week, or a month, or whatever, he sought the Lord about this. Three separate occasions. Three seasons of time. And the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. And when Paul came to grips with that answer, there was a contentment with it. Uh, but I don't think we're to read in Paul a, a discontentment or an impatience because Paul's prayer was not self-serving. Paul's thorn in the flesh, I believe, was something that was a hindrance to his ministry, or at least he perceived it to be a hindrance to his ministry. And he wanted this removed so that he could pursue his ministry and serve God from his perspective more effectively. But the Lord was communicating to Paul, no, you actually are serving more effectively with this affliction. And, and I'm going to leave it with you. And the whole world, uh, we've all benefited from Paul's testimony in that, right? The second one, don't let these lighter crosses, these lighter afflictions overshadow the blessings, right? So flat tire, right? Is that going to ruin your day? You had a flat tire? Well, be thankful you didn't run off the road. You didn't wreck into somebody or you didn't wreck into something or you're not hurt, you're not injured. You just, it's just a flat tire. The Lord protected me. The Lord preserved my life. Right? The third one, he says, pray for and have pity on those who have offended you. Now, maybe an affliction is 
badgering from an unsaved coworker. Now that would be an affliction, no doubt. But maybe it's with a coworker or a family member or some other person that seems to be a thorn in your flesh, as it were. Well, do you pray for them or do you complain about them? And these are his admonitions here. Pray for and have pity on those who have offended you. And then the fourth one is just make sure you're not too easily offended. And again, in the context of these lighter afflictions, these lighter crosses, I think these are just these day-to-day things that come up that, that are a bother, that, that are, are discouraging to us or, or, or something along those lines. Well, don't be too offended. Take things to the Lord. But then he gets into the meat of really what he's dealing with, of walking with God with affliction. And he breaks it down into really five different categories. So the first one, don't be overcome with anger. The second one, don't be overwhelmed with grief. The third one, C, bear afflictions patiently. D, bear afflictions thankfully. And then the last one, bear afflictions fruitfully. And this is really the main structure of what he talks about in dealing with afflictions. And so he starts here with, don't be overcome with anger in affliction. God has very clearly forbidden uh, passionate, rash uh, rages of anger. We're, We're all in agreement with that. But more often than not, these passion outbursts of anger are things that are fueled by our own pride. We have been hurt or something has happened that has made us look bad or has, you know, offended us in some way. I had you turn to Jonah because really this is a a good example of this. I haven't been here for what Pastor Kimbrough has talked about with the book of Jonah so far. I don't know if he said this phrase outright, but Jonah was a racist. Has Pastor Kimbrough said that? No. Well, he was. Jonah was a racist. And Jonah hated the Ninevites, but Jonah did love Israel. He was a, a patriotic Israelite and wanted God's blessing on Israel. And when God came and said, well, I'm going to bless Nineveh, well, he was fit to be tied. He was very angry. He didn't want to have anything to do with Nineveh. They were heathens. And so he goes and he preaches, and he doesn't want to preach because he knows that God is merciful, and he knows that as soon as he goes in there and starts preaching to these people, they're going to trust the Lord, they're going to be saved, and he doesn't want them to be saved. And so he's just mad. He's just angry. And he does his preaching. He does his thing. And the people are converted. And we get to chapter 4. And he's outside the town sitting up on a hill. And he's watching the city. And he's watching. He's really just waiting for God to send a ball of fire and consume and kill all of them. I mean, that's what he wants. That's the desire of his heart. He's mad, not at the Ninevites for trusting the Lord. He's mad at God. He's angry at God because God did something for these heathen that Jonah wanted God to do 
for Israel. And God didn't do it for Israel. He did it for, for them. And so you know the story. There's this blazing sun and Jonah's all hot and he's sweaty and there's a gourd that comes. And this gourd grows up and it provides shade. And Jonah's happy that he's got some shade. He's protected from the sun. Wakes up the next morning only to find a worm has gotten into the gourd, killed the vine overnight. All this is a miracle, right? Killed the vine overnight. And now Jonah's even more mad at God. He won't even give me shade. And so we get to verse 9 of Jonah 4. And this is a question I've asked my children several times. Doest thou well to be angry? And this is the Lord's question to Jonah. Then the Lord said, um, and God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And look at Jonah's response to the Lord. Yeah, I have every right to be mad because of what you've done. You did this. This is Jonah's accusation to the God of heaven. You did this. You caused all these problems. Jonah's mad at God. He's angry at the Lord. Well, it doesn't take a lot of spiritual sense to recognize the fact that that is in itself sinful. It's sinful to be angry in such a way, but even worse, to direct that anger at God, to blame God for the problems. But remember, from the very beginning of our study in walking with God, kind of the main foundational principle that, that we've laid from the very beginning and that has been woven through every chapter that we've been dealing with is the whole idea of walking in the fear of God. Walking in the presence of God. Knowing and recognizing and understanding that God sees all, knows all. God is by your side. He knows every thought, word, and deed. And we're living and we're walking in the fear of the Lord. And if we come back to that foundational principle, and also the foundational principles of what we've dealt with about God, God does not... The, the phrase I used a long time ago, God is not mean. God is not mean. God is not doing things to hurt you. He's not. It might be hurtful, but God is not doing things to hurt you. And so we come back to that, and we can't... That, that has to temper our anger. That has to control our spirit and control our temper and, and give us a sense of calm. God is here. Right? So, you know, we're all sinful. So let's just be honest with ourselves. At home, as a parent, I've lost my temper with my kids. I've screamed at them. I've hollered at them, like really loudly. And it's sinful. It's wrong. I should never do that. But here's the sinful, sinful part of it. I would do that at home. I'm embarrassed to admit that, it, that I do it. But I don't do it here. I don't, I don't do it here because I don't want any of you to know that I do it. 
right? It's hypocritical, right? Let's just call it what it is. It's hypocritical. It's wrong. It, you know, I shouldn't do that. But I don't do it here because I don't want any of you to know that I lose my temper. But at home, when nobody's watching, right? Is that not ridiculous to say? When nobody's watching, but no, that's so wrong. God is there, just the same as he's here. Right? And so you, you want to save face and have a good testimony and all good appearance among your friends, but you don't care about a good testimony and good appearance before the God of heaven. Right? This is how sinful we are. This is, this is how awful and, and wrong we are. Don't be overcome with anger in your affliction. He also goes on to say, if you cannot control your anger, then do what you can to remove yourself from that situation. Do what you can to, to leave that. He doesn't use this phrase, and I know this is overused in maybe wrong context, but you know, take a time out. Remove yourself from it and seek the Lord in that. Lord, I need you to calm my spirit. I need you to quiet my heart right now because right now, left to myself, I'm enraged by these circumstances and I need your help to control me and to calm me. Sometimes we can't remove ourselves from the situation. Sometimes it's irresponsible to, to just leave, right? What we're not talking about is, you know, storming out, walking out of the room in a huff. Right? That's counterproductive and often more hurtful than helpful. And so if we can't remove ourselves from the situation, this is when we absolutely need to seek the Lord for grace and help to calm our spirit. Now, this is all, as, as we go through this book, and, and as I mention these things that come up, we see how in so many cases, this is all so cyclical, right? Theoretically, we would never get to this point if we were rightly doing all the other stuff. If we were rightly walking with God from the very beginning of the day, walking with God in the middle of the day, walking with God at the end of the day, at, as, as we've been you know, going through, then that progressive growth in grace of walking with God consistently heads this off at the pass. Right? It, 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 it theoretically, hopefully, makes these kinds of situations far more rare. Way less angry. It tempers all this as we walk with God and we're closer with Him and we're in better fellowship with Him, then it's helpful. But he does uh, deal with one question. I'm going to take my coat off because somebody turned. Like, it's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in here. It's seven times hotter than it has ever want to be heated. Um. When is anger sinful? So we read in Ephesians, be ye angry and sin not. Well, what does that mean? Well, does that verse mean 
that there is an anger that is justified. Well, yeah, because that verse, that phrase, I think I need to go back and look at it, but I'm almost positive from having preached on this before. It is an imperative, be ye angry. So there is a commandment there, be angry, but don't sin. So how can you do that? How can you be angry and not sin? I think for most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, that's not something we're very familiar with. We are far more familiar with the being angry and sinning while we're angry than being angry and, and not sinning. It is possible to do. So when does anger become sinful? And so he gives three things here. First of all, when it's without cause, because in the situation, in, in the affliction, problem, the trial, whatever it is, God has not been dishonored, and neither you nor your neighbor has been injured. Your wife burnt your toast. That does not blaspheme the name of God. That does not injure anybody that you got a piece of burnt toast. Right? But how many husbands have lost their business because they, you know, wife burned it? That's kind of a, a stereotypical kind of thing, but I think you understand what I mean. Right? That, there's no injury to anybody. Nobody's hurt here. This is an annoyance. This is just a, a grievance that doesn't really matter at all. Now, you juxtapose that with a righteous indignation that they've made it legal to kill millions of babies a year. Right? I'm angry at that. And you should be angry at that. God has been blasphemed in that. People are really being hurt and injured in that. And there is a righteous anger that is justifiable in that context. The second thing when is anger sinful is when it drags out for a long time. Right? So I don't know exactly how to illustrate this, but when when your anger festers and brews and when your anger becomes a pet and you hold on to it and you're, you're angry inordinately. And then when it distracts you to the point that it, it, it neglect, you're, you end up neglecting other duties. Some of this is going to overlap with what he talks about with being overwhelmed with grief in our affliction. But this anger can, this turns into bitterness. Angerness is, or I'm sorry, bitterness is kind of anger that takes root, that grows in your own soul that doesn't affect anybody else but you. But it's so distracting to you to the point that you end up neglecting other legitimate duties. Um, we're not going to finish this today, but we'll go on to the second one here. The second one, he says, don't be overwhelmed with grief. And he talks about grief from two different perspectives, but the first thing he mentions is the term worldly grief as opposed to, you'll see in the second paragraph, um, he, he just uses the Bible language, godly sorrow. Worldly grief as opposed to godly sorrow. 
But with worldly grief, he says this is the kind of grief that makes us discontent with God's providences. This, when something bad has happened, let's, let's use something that is relatable, I think, to all of us. When we have a loved one die, well, we say all the time, as believers, we sorrow, but we don't sorrow like them that have no hope. The Bible teaches us that. We don't sorrow as if there is no hope. When we have a loved one that we know knows the Lord, and we know that they're with the Lord, then we can rejoice that they're with the Lord. We, we sorrow that they have died. We sorrow that they're not with us. We miss their presence. We miss their, their company. But a worldly grief would be such that would kind of like the anger thing and like we've seen in Jonah, God, this is your fault. You took them from me. And we're discontent with the providence that God has brought. This will end up being next week, but he, he deals carefully with this subject of how we respond to providence in, in the way that God deals with us in our affliction. And there's wrong ways to accept affliction. And again, we'll, we'll come to this, um, what's going to be next week. But there are right ways to deal with affliction. I need to correct something in your notes. So if you look at your paragraph, Scudder uses the term, this is B, the first paragraph. Henry Scudder uses the term worldly grief. He says that this kind of grief makes you discontent against God's providences, makes you anxious about other people's actions toward you. If you're taking notes, if you write on your notes, fix this. This is, this is not right. When I was originally studying this and I put together the notes for you all as I'm doing my notes, and then I go back and add to and put notes for myself, I realized after I had already printed this that I, I really got the wrong sense of, of what he was communicating. So in his book... He says that worldly grief makes us discontent against God's providences. That's the first one. But then he uses the term, it makes us fret against men. And when I saw the word fret, well, to fret about something is to be anxious about something. And so I just, I went with it and I, that's the way I typed it up. And then as I went back and I began to think about that more and I'd already printed the notes, I realize that doesn't make any sense. Maybe I don't understand what the word fret means. That's why I look it up. And it does mean to be anxious. <laughs> That's one definition. Um, but there's a second definition that I think in the context really captures better what he's talking about. So his or the other definition of the word fret is to gradually wear away at something by rubbing or gnawing. Not a definition that I'm familiar with. I think it's an older definition. And this is an older book. And in the context, I think this makes more sense. So this worldly grief makes us discontent with God's providence. That's wrong. And it makes us wear away at other people. It makes us 
when we don't deal with grief in a godly way, it makes us burdensome to others. We wear away at them. We gnaw at them with our wrong perspective, with our wrong dealing with grief. And we, we, we gnaw, we wear away at other people. And so I wrote here, when you are so overwhelmed by something that you're not trusting the Lord with it, you end up unnecessarily burdening other people with it. And this goes, it ties in with point three there. Um, no, I don't, have, I don't have them enumerated like that. They're just in your paragraph. Eventually makes you unfit for natural and civil duties. And this is what we would, I think today, just identify as depression. Right? This, is, this is when you're so preoccupied with grief that has so overwhelmed you, you can't function anymore. And this is what most would you know, identify and define as a, a clinical depression kind of thing. And so with grief, there is this worldly kind of grief that we know is, is not right. But then he turns the tables on this and talks about dealing with grief in another way. And he says the best remedy against worldly grief is to turn it into a godly sorrow for sin. Now, we'll have to unflesh, un, un, I don't want to say unpack because that's not the right thing to say. We'll have to deal with this more later. And I, we're unfortunate in a time here we, we need to be done. But I don't want to make this confusing in your mind because I used the illustration earlier of the death of a loved one and not having worldly grief over that and I want to make sure we understand the tie between the death of a loved one and then the context of 2 Corinthians 7-11 turning that into godly sorrow that worketh repentance um, I realize that may be confusing, but having a godly sorrow for sin, and even in the context of death, being brought to terms with the fact that if it weren't for sin, none of this would ever happen. If it wasn't for sin, there would be no death. And sin is so awful. It causes so much pain. It wreaks so much havoc. It is so destructive. And even in, even in those hard circumstances of a loved one dying, having a spiritual maturity, I want to be careful using that word because I don't want to insinuate that someone is immature not to necessarily think this way. But having a spiritual maturity to process sin is so bad. I need to stop doing it. I need to stay away from it. I need growth and grace. I need to walk with the Lord. Not that that's going to prevent your own death or prevent anybody else's death, but it's a reminder of what sin causes. It causes so much hurt and heartache. And, and death, like the, the ultimate hurt and heartache on this side of eternity, to, to know that you know, any sin causes hurt and heartache. I just want to avoid it. 
I want to avoid hurt and heartache. I don't want to cause it. I don't want to experience it. And so I want to live godly and righteously. And that's kind of the direction that he goes. And maybe we can flesh this out a little bit more next week and hopefully make that clear. And I hope I've not been super confusing in what I've, I've said. But we really need to stop here. We're out of time. So let's close in prayer and just keep these notes uh, in your Bible or bring them back with you and we'll finish out this study, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. But let's close in prayer now. Our Father, we come before you just very humbly acknowledging our need for wisdom and clarity. We pray that you would help us in our affliction. It is something that we all know and we would say that we rejoice because you've told us, as we'll see later in this study from the book of James, that we're to count it all joy because this affliction, these trials, these circumstances that you bring into our lives are for our good. They ultimately work in us great spiritual joy and we pray that you'll help us as we continue through this study to make all these connections and understand what you've communicated in your word to us. We pray that you would quiet our hearts for this worship service to follow. We pray for Pastor Kimbrough as he preaches, that you would fill him with your spirit. We ask all this in Jesus' name.